Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfaw and I'm really excited. We have a fantastic show for you today and an amazing guest. I have with me Dr. Brian Sexton, who is the director of the Duke Center for Healthcare Safety and Quality. He's an associate professor of psychiatry at Duke University School of Medicine, one of the world leaders on research and thinking about both the diagnosis and uh, phenomenon of burnout in healthcare providers, and of course, also what we can do about it. And I'm really excited to talk to him about that today. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thank, happy to be here. Thank you. So you have really made this your your career and have done incredible work on it. Tell me a bit about you and how you got interested in burnout and wellness. It was a pretty circuitous route, uh, non-traditional one. Uh, I started off in flight safety. So I was looking at why do planes crash and uh, what we got into was safety culture and looking at what are the predictors of when uh, we couldn't like actually predict plane crashes because you have to wait about 75 years to be able to predict them in a statistical model. So we'd look at things like errors and error rates and how often people kind of miss things. Uh, and I decided rather than wait 75 years to see if I ever made an impact on a field, you can go hang out outside of an ER for about 24 or 25 minutes. And one of the people admitted is probably going to encounter some kind of uh, a misadventure during their stay. Uh, so it was just a field that was more ripe with opportunity, uh, less standardization, if you will. Uh, so started off looking at safety culture in healthcare, uh, looking at things like teamwork norms and patient safety norms. And uh, uh, we created metrics and tools to assess that and kind of ran into this one metric uh, that we started using uh, called emotional exhaustion, which is actually a way of looking at well-being, like to what extent are you kind of uh, depleted from the demands that are, that are placed upon you. And uh, it worked so much better than anything I had created. It was like such a superior metric. It was kind of hard to ignore. So we started looking at that and curating that and cultivating that and uh, kind of uh, uh, instead of just looking at 
like leadership and teamwork and patient safety norms. We also looked at work-life balance and and uh, and you know uh, well-being metrics like uh, like emotional exhaustion. And uh, they do an even better job of predicting clinical outcomes and operational outcomes and. Um, at the time I was working at Hopkins, uh, we were colleagues and, uh, I was getting burned out and, uh, I was also getting recruited uh, by Duke and, um, uh, you know, I was trying to put the brakes on some of the bloodstream infection reduction work that we were doing to say, Hey, whoa, whoa, we need to slow down. looks like there's a lot of burnout in some of these ICUs. And uh, I was told very emphatically, like, look, man, you're either on the train or you're off the train. Uh, cause we're putting these, these bundles in every ICU in the universe and at the same time, Duke was recruiting me saying, how do we do quality improvement at a pace that's going to be appropriate and meaningful for the next 20, 30 years? And that was just a different mindset. So kind of it was a, a evolution of kind of fields and topics, but it all kind of it felt right to me because I was burned out and all these topics made sense to me. And uh, that was how I became a burnout researcher. <laughs> Amazing. And when when was that? Because that that I think. You know, clearly everyone now is talking about burnout, but but this was a while back, right? You you kind of were on the the leading edge of this. Yeah, this was like twenty, like oh oh four, oh five, oh six, oh seven, uh, yeah. around that around that time. And was there a lot of discussion of at the back then? So we're talking about almost twenty years ago of burnout in healthcare, or was it just no, what? no? It was it was that was it was pretty new to be talking about things like burnout at that point. And and there were some researchers that were doing it. Linda Aiken was doing it in nursing, and Tate Shanafeld and Lottie Derby, Derby and, and Colin West were doing it uh, for physicians. But it wasn't, you know. Um, mainstream, if you will. In fact, I, I would say, to be honest, like even five to seven years ago, you'd be talking to senior leaders and, uh, and they'd, they'd kind of, kind of pull you aside and say, listen, is it really, like I'm the CEO. Is it my job to worry about the work-life balance of these guys? That's not why I became a leader. Um, but those conversations are over. Like that is not something I have heard at all uh, here recently. Uh, and it's just like, what the hell am I supposed to do about all this well-being stuff? I am, this is not what I trained for. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, even, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I, I don't remember hearing the word well-being or burnout. I, I mean, I'm, it may have been, it may have come up, but it's certainly nothing like it is today. And I think that a lot of that is due to the amazing work that you've, you've done in your group. So tell me a little bit about what your career looks like now. What do your days look like? How do you spend your time? Um, you know, clearly you're doing a lot of work on this, but what does it look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, well, uh, it's a lot of <laughs> remarkably similar conversations with leaders inside of Duke and outside of Duke uh, uh, about like what are we supposed to do with the world being the way it is. Uh, the turnovers high. There, the the problems that leaders are having to manage now are so fundamentally different than anything that their mentors ever had to deal with. That there's not someone sitting there with all the answers, um, and so there's a it, it's it's a it's a it's a great exercise for evidence-based kind of uh, scientifically minded people to try to give fair advice based on inadequate, you know, empirical evidence for things. Uh, and that's that's uh, it also kind of says, wow, we have a lot of work to do to fully kind of fix this problem. Um what we do, what we spend most of our time on on a given day uh, is uh, creating and refining uh, what we call bite-sized well-being interventions and tools. Uh, we also, uh, less recently, but we spent a lot of time over the past 20 years working on well-being metrics. How do we get the assessment piece right so that we're 
you know, uh, we're really we're measuring what we think we're measuring. Uh, and uh, then a ton of time just mentoring, writing, um, uh, spending a lot of time, uh, an awful lot of time every week uh, doing CME activities and CEU activities where we're, we're folding in uh, opportunities to cultivate well-being for an hour of continuing education credit. Uh, and, and that has been a delivery mechanism that has been very effective, but it's also, you know, it, it takes a lot of our time. Yeah, I'll bet. And, you know, my memory um, from the last time we talked a few years ago was that, you know, you've really done a lot of not just thinking about well-being, but, but you know, designing trials. I mean, like randomized trials around these interventions so that it's not just... I think so often, at least it used to be the case that there were everyone, you know, even when people started talking about wellness and burnout, it would kind of be like, well, you know, we should just send our trainees, you know, out to the bar more often because that'll fix it. Right. And, you know, right, everyone said right. that sounds like a good wellness activity, but there was no data. Nobody was studying it. But, you know, that's an approach you've really taken is to try to to study the interventions you come up with. Yeah. And and uh, it, it's made complicated uh, by a, a, a variety of factors, which, I mean, I don't want to bore your listeners with. Uh, but uh, what happened, I think, uh, early on was there like, people really f- forward-thinking physicians like uh, like uh, Mickey Krasner and others that, that did um, studies on physicians where they would do mindfulness-based stress reduction or meditation practices. That was exciting and, and groundbreaking. This was like back, back in 2009 was the first RCT, you know, showing that this works on physicians. Um, and, and that's exciting. But let me tell you, um, I never go to an audience of burned out, you know, healthcare workers and say, hey, you guys should try yoga and meditation and start training for a marathon. That's insulting. Um, and frankly, that's ex- it, it's that science because it was done so early. Um, it became the stuff that got cited. Well, if you look at the literature, the things that they recommend are like meditation. Well, yeah, meditation works if you have time to spend 45 to 60 minutes a day, like not doing other things. Um, uh, oh, and by the way, if you stop doing it, you lose the benefits. It's, it's not much of an incentive for people who are like currently really miserable. Um, and that was why we went down this other road of bite size. So what can we do that, uh, it takes two, three minutes a day for a week, you know, or 10 days, and we can put, uh, enough gas back in the tank that we can measure a difference with clinical trials a month, six months, 12 months later. And, um, as you find the things that work, uh, uh you, you build off of that and make adjustments and, and try to diversify the interventions enough so that you really, like you as a healthcare worker can can select a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. And it's not like, well, if you're burned out, you got to meditate. It's it's like, well, you know, here's some things you might you might be interested in trying. Uh, and by the way, a lot of people will use those bite-sized strategies as ways to put enough gas back in the tank. And maybe they want to try meditation, but it's definitely not for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And you know, I want to get back to this because I know some people feel like giving providers things to do to treat burnout is kind of missing the point of structural change to prevent the burnout that our system causes. But let's come back to that, because I want to just first ask you, in case there are folks out there thinking, you know, uh, what are we talking about here? <laughs> let's just talk about some of the basics. When we say burnout, uh, you know, people hear it all the time, but what do we actually mean? What is burnout? So uh, burnout, uh, to give like the real boring answer, is uh, generally considered uh, uh, 
the definition given by Maslach, Christina Maslach created the Maslach burnout inventory. And that there are three different dimensions of that. There's emotional exhaustion. We feel depleted by the demands that are placed upon you. That's one domain of burnout. The second domain, there's three. The second is a depersonalization where you kind of group, you, you view others as objects. Like you view, for example, your patients as obstacles to getting stuff done. Um, uh, and the third is a personal accomplishment where you, where you just don't feel like you're good at what you're doing anymore. For example, I just don't feel like I'm good at this anymore. Uh, and any one of those, is enough for you to be called burnout. Those are three different pathways to getting burned out. Um, uh, and uh, well, I, I could get, make this really wonky or really simple. I I personally uh, uh, learned I learned a lot from my kids. I'm a father of four, and um, my my youngest one she challenges me probably the most. <clears throat> um, and not too long ago. Uh, she was like, daddy, you're always talking about burnout, uh, burnout, burnout, burnout. What is burnout? And I started to, well, depersonalization and a, and a deep, diminished sense of personal accomplishment and emotional exhaustion. And, and, and you're not following what daddy's saying, are you, honey? And she says, no, I don't know what any of that stuff means. And so we're like, well, look, it's, it's a way of, of like looking at, uh, well, there, there's two ways that we define it. The, the, the explanation that I give my daughter which is how we've operationalized well-being in, 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 in our studies is uh, your access to positive emotion. Like when you're burned out, honey, uh, it's really hard to think that something's funny. It's hard to find something interesting. It's hard to feel grateful or hopeful or, or inspired. It's really hard to feel any kind of positive emotion at all when you're when you're burned out. And she's like, oh, that's boring. Okay, dad, thanks for, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not interested in that anymore. Um, but we took that definition and we really worked with it. We published it and we've, we've shown that in, in interventions where you can increase uh, 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 access to positive emotions, you watch burnout just pop, 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 pop. It just, it just drain it uh, hydraulically. It's really, it's really a, a linear relationship. Uh, so that's one kind of uh, thing that we've uh, really leaned on empirically in our randomized control trials and, and in our, in our tools and interventions. Um, but to make it even simpler, like, like, like what is this well-being thing that we're talking about? How do you like break it down into like a bumper sticker? Um, it's, it's just, Jed, it's, it, it, it's just your ability to do stuff. And so if your well-being is compromised, your ability to do stuff is compromised. And that's why when burnout, you know, goes up, you're going to see your infection rates go up and your medication error rates go up and you're going to see problems with turnover and problems with disruptive behaviors and like you name it. If it's a clinical or operational outcome, no wonder there's this clear link with emotional exhaustion that is superior to what we were finding when we were looking for that link in things like teamwork and things like patient safety norms. Now, those did predict outcomes, but burnout predicts it at about twice the magnitude. So why not look at burnout? Yeah. And so that's really key. I mean, what you said, right, is there is clear evidence tying burnout to, like you said, medication errors, not following best practices, a poor patient, right? Lack of uh, harm to patient safety. Risk adjusted mortality ratios, you name it. Yeah. 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 We can't so this, find any instances where more burnout is a good thing. Right. <laughs> right. For sure. So this is, you know, clearly, clearly, this is a, a big priority. This is, and for people who think, you know, and hopefully there are fewer and fewer thinking this, but for people who are thinking, ah, this is not a, a hard outcome. This is, you know, this affects patients and providers every day, right? They're, they're, yeah. and what happens to them, they're, how how good the patient's care is, right? So um, it's a big, yeah. big deal. Not yeah. to mention, you know, there's ties to provider, you know, suicidal ideations and abuse, alcohol and oh, drug oh, abuse, yeah. right? All these things. 
It's bad for our patients. It's bad for us. It's bad for your marriage. It's bad for your immune system function. It's bad for your sleep quality. It's just um, uh, we we found a way to measure it that it it really gets at the at the the heart of of the issue. Uh, your ability to do stuff. Now there are three domains of burnout according to the Maslow burnout inventory. And I, some of my colleagues they ding me you know uh, in person and and when they're reviewing my paper saying why didn't you use the full Maslow burnout inventory and you're because it's long and healthcare workers don't have time to fill out all these questions number one and number two the other domains of burnout don't predict the way emotional exhaustion does they just don't i'm sorry uh that emotional exhaustion predicts clinical outcomes and operational outcomes the questions are easy to answer the other domains are are, are it's more difficult to say things like i view my patients as obstacles to getting work done it's easier to say, I feel exhausted from what I'm doing, right? Yeah. And so you get more accurate data, you get, it's easier to answer, it's not as activating, uh, and it does a, such a good job of predicting. I just, uh, there's no, uh, I've tried to come up with metrics that are as good, I have yet to do so. Yeah, and I remember talking to Lottie Derby about this um, a while back, and there there are, they've done some work, right, where I think just even a couple of the questions from that section can be pretty predictive, right? You can get pretty, pretty narrow. They do okay, yeah. They they don't do as well as the scale, um, but they give they definitely give you definitely give you a signal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right. So, you know, we we hear obviously there's a burnout epidemic in healthcare. Is that true? And if so, who's affected? Is it is it physicians, nurses, mid level providers, trainees, students, everybody? I mean, who, who is it? Is it a real thing? And if so, who's affected by it? Um, yeah, it's a it's a uh, an epidemic globally um, uh, uh, in terms of human suffering. Uh, it's more acute in healthcare because what we do in healthcare uh, is more consequential. Um, and uh, I I think it's interesting when people talk about like physician well being or nurse well being or resident well being because kind of frankly if you're a carbon based life form and your well-being takes a hit, it, it's awful. It's, it's just really bad. And the way you diagnose it uh, is uh, agnostic to what your background is, and the way you treat it is largely agnostic to what your background is. It's just that there are budgets set aside for some groups and not for other groups, and so we call it like, you know, this is the pot of money for that particular type of healthcare worker. Uh, but we have not found any of our interventions to work differently uh, on, on one category or one age range, or one kind of kind of background than a, than another. Um, uh, but if, is it an epidemic? Uh, yes. I mean, I mean, it was a problem before uh, the pandemic, uh, and uh, right now, um, this the, just the social media has made it worse. The pandemic made it worse, um, and uh, the 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 next. For the next 10 years, each generation that comes up through the ranks and enters the workforce, they actually are entering the workforce with more depression and anxiety and, and struggles uh, than the, the, the year before them. Uh, and so the workforce, the workforce is being replenished by people who are entering the workforce with higher rates of burnout than we would expect. Uh, and that's why there are these really interesting patterns when you look at people in their 50s and 60s. Um, and people that are in their 20s and 30s, their well-being looks just fundamentally different uh, because one of them, uh, one of those groups kind of came of age uh, before social media was kind of making them worry about kind of fear of missing out and 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 saying the right thing and 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 doing the right thing kind of with a, with a picture of yourself doing it. Um, and and one of those uh, groups, it, it's all that they've ever known. Uh, so there's a lot that contributes to that that disconnect. Um, but I'll tell you what we found, and, and this is an article that 
that we have under review right now, uh, where we looked at 30,000 healthcare workers. And we looked at them um, in 2019, 2020, and 2021. This is the, the fall of each of those years. So fall of 2019, before the pandemic. Uh, fall of 2020, so during the pandemic, but before vaccines. Uh, and then fall of 21, after vaccines and at the beginning of Delta and at the beginning of Omicron. Right. Uh, and when you track 30,000 people over three years, um, the 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 end result is everybody's worse by year three. But um, physicians took a different trajectory from other roles. And uh, this was this was tricky to get through the, the, re the reviews and the editors. So basically, uh, I'll, I'll say nurses and everybody else, they got worse in 2020. And they got worse again in 2021. Physicians actually, their emotional exhaustion got better. It actually went down in 2020. So in that year from 2019 to 2020, uh, their volumes were down on average, right? Um, their flexibility was up. Telehealth, oh, this is cool. Uh, this is a, like new flexibilities and freedoms. Uh, and if you weren't just looking at ICUs or ED docs, right, uh, on average, like dermatologists and others, like their burnout went down. Um, but then in 2021, with all the surges and Delta and Omicron, oh my goodness, uh, we saw the single biggest one-year spike in emotional exhaustion in any data set in the literature uh, uh, to date, uh, and that was in physicians. So wow. uh, physicians had a different trajectory than everybody else. Like everybody else was kind of like worse and then worse again, physicians better, and then a lot worse. Uh, and so that's an interesting story that that says we we do have to acknowledge that that our different our our colleagues meet struggles at different time points in different regions and at different kind of stages, um, uh, but the solutions that you use are remarkably consistent across those groups. That is really interesting. So, is the idea? I mean, you know, do you think the reason that physicians got better then was because they again the non ICU kind of non ED, but the dermatologist, for example, or the you know pediatrician or wh whoever was mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden they just didn't have they weren't as overworked, right? Because there weren't, right. they, everything was dialed back. Yeah, way dialed back. And the EMR data reflect that, right? So, so when you look at volumes and time spent in the medical record, they went down dramatically in 2020 and then shot up again dramatically in 21. And that com completely maps on to what we're, we're talking about. Um, you know, there are some who say, uh, and maybe they're right, I don't, I don't know, but there's some who say that, well, the, the progress made in these national efforts to combat, you know, physician you know, burnout have finally borne some fruit, but the fact that it went up again in 2021, it's make, it makes that a complicated yeah. argument. You know, it reminds me, uh, my wife's hospital, she's a pediatrician, outpatient pediatrician, and they got hit by a cyber attack a couple of years ago. And oh, wow. there was a lot of bad things that came of that. But what was fascinating, Brian, and I, I never would have guessed this going in, is that for a period of time, because of this, they couldn't log in to, to the health record system <laughs> online. And so all of a sudden, uh -huh. instead of coming home and having two hours of, you know, epic chart messages to respond to and charting to do, she had nothing to do. And it was yeah. amazing. <laughs> it was yeah. her well-being. Who knew was, hey, life could look like that? Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 made, it reminded me of the days before, you know, when everything was on paper, right? Where like, yeah. you just, you came home and when you were home, you were home. I mean, there was no way to log in. You couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, and, and you're bringing up a really interesting point. And this is something that, um, that uh, for example, uh, Daniel Tofik and Tate Shanafeld and others have looked at. And we actually published an article on this last year uh, looking at um, uh, uh, 
work-life balance uh, amongst physicians. This was a national sample of physicians that 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 Tate Chenefeld and and Lottie Derbing, Colin West had all kind of pulled together. That that they do like every I think three years they do this national sample of physicians, and um, they included our work-life balance scale in there. And so we were able to really break down the work-life balance. It was fascinating uh, that like with with a uh, number of hours worked per week, you're with each kind of increment and in number of hours worked per week, your, your work-life balance just falls off the map, you know, each time. Um, but there are big differences between uh, uh, women physicians and men physicians, uh, which is fascinating. And then when you add in um, uh, race, uh, the results become even more fascinating and complex because it's not just like, Oh, women, this men, that, but also um, African-American Male physicians had the best work-life balance of any physician group looked at, and African-American female physicians had the absolute worst work-life balance of any group. So we are still just learning how to tease apart, find the groups that need more help, uh, you know, acknowledge the inequities that that contribute and, and lead to that, and, and, and really kind of uh, figure it out. But it's not just like there's one demographic variable that explains everything. Fascinating. Now, you mentioned that social media has made all this worse. Is that because, uh, like social media tends, in, I think many people's opinion, to make everything worse? You're always seeing what looks like these idealized lives of everyone else, and it makes you feel like yours is no good. Or why, why did social media uh, contribute negatively to burnout? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, for one, I mean, I mean, I, we could turn this into an hour-long conversation about social media, uh, but basically the artificial intelligence algorithms that are behind all social media, including Google and YouTube and these others, um, once you put in a question, uh, it starts feeding you things and sends you down these rabbit holes of, well, maybe I am, you know, uh, this, you know, fill in the blank, this, this thing that I was asking a question about at, at two in the morning when I was, you know, frustrated after a really bad day. And suddenly you keep seeing these things pop up in your feed and, and, um, uh, that creates, that creates a problem, especially for, um, uh, uh, younger generations, uh, uh older generations are, 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 are still vulnerable, but less so. Um, the, the problem with social media too is, um, you, you, you're expected to kind of answer complicated questions in such a, a limited number of characters. Like the conversation that you and I are having right now um, would be limited to like a half of a sentence, right. you know, if it were a tweet. Uh, and how do you, how do you really glean meaningful? I think med, like, for example, med Twitter has a lot of really good aspects to it. It's uniquely good in some ways. Um, but like Twitter writ large, um, uh, can can be a way of uh, polarizing people, making them uh, more angry than they in, you know want to be or or naturally you know would be, uh, and and it's those polarizing effects that can just be especially when you know we we didn't go into medicine so that we could like deal with politics every day, but now we can't avoid politics every day, and that becomes one more source of emotional exhaustion, political exhaustion, and pandemic exhaustion, and you know this all you know and racial injustice, like these all become new forms of just emotional exhaustion that we deal with at work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that we'd all be better off without any social media, but certainly uh, yeah. it's not a surprise that that has contributed. So I want to get back to what we started talking about before, which is this question of, you know, and we'll, we'll come to the the stuff you've worked on, which is how can we help treat burnout? But what about prevention? And, you know, what do we say to people who say, listen, you know, um, telling me I can do yoga or whatever is, is missing the point, which is that 
the healthcare system is is not in, not built well and it's causing burnout and we need to restructure yeah. the system um is there can is that you know what do we say to them and then also how do we is it possible to prevent burnout and if so how yeah i know i, I appreciate that question and and i, I want to I, I let me let me kind of uh, flesh out what the argument that I hear is, right? Um, there are people like Z-Dog who is unbelievably entertaining and, and, and just sharp and, and, um, coherent and, and pithy. I really like his, he's entertaining and, um, uh, I, I real I really like what he has to say, but he, he he made this viral video saying there's no such thing as burnout. It's all moral injury, and then people keep kind of he says so. The next time you know somebody tells you that you're that you're that you're not resilient enough, you just put your fist in their face and you say there's no such thing as burnout. It's all moral injury, and you're injuring me. And it's just like whoa whoa whoa, dude. Look, come on, hey man, look. There is such a thing as moral injury, and there is such a thing as burnout, and and not all burnout is moral injury. Um, and and are, do they overlap? Yeah, there's plenty of overlap. There's people who have death by a thousand paper cuts of like bad systems that just make them miserable, and and then they can be put in a situation where there's moral injury. Uh, and then there's people who who don't have that last part, and they're still burned out. Uh, and they, and and they need help too. Um, so um, there's a lot of um, I mean, this idea of of um, uh, do you kind of just fix the system or do you do something else? I, you know, I I had a very enlightening. If you can tell a quick story, um, I, a couple of years ago, my uh, one of my uh, kids was horribly horribly bullied at school. And, uh, it was just, it was awful. Uh, and it was not only that was on camera, but you couldn't really prove it, you know, from the camera angle. And, and, uh, after a lot of arguing and, and, and just, just deep frustration, um, like, what do you do when your child is bullied? Do you, um, do you a demand that the school change the way they do things to prevent this from happening in the future? Or do you be, Help your child who's clearly suffering and, and 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 confused and scared, and they need your help. And the answer is, give me a break. You have to do both. So it's such a ridiculous argument to say, oh, we have to fix the system and only the system. It's like, come on, man. There's there's between a half and two thirds of all healthcare workers right now are struggling with well being. So like half of the workforce is in the water actively drowning and you want to just shake your fist at like the administration and say, fix the system, throw out some freaking life preservers, man. Like, what are you what, like? I don't, I don't understand that. That, that is such a junior varsity way of viewing a very complicated problem and it feels good. And it's so, it's so populist and, and you get to, you get to get people to say, yeah, yeah, I'm not burned out. I'm, I'm injured. Cause you injured me. It's like, it feels good, but it doesn't help the problem. Cause you know what? I got, I got news for everybody who's listening to this, to this podcast right now. Like if you work in healthcare, like welcome to the system, man, you are, you are part of the system. We are all part of the system. And yes, we need to be part of the solution. And it's going to take time to fix this broken system. But the people that are actively drowning, they need our help and our support right freaking now. I mean, I, I feel I, it gets me worked up because I just I, I deal with this problem a lot, this false dichotomy. It's both and it's never one or the other. All right. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Brian Sexton. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right. We just heard from Brian about the fact that it isn't really just one burnout or moral injury, but both are true. And here's my response. Yeah. So I couldn't agree more on both those points. One, uh, moral, like you said, moral injury exists, burnout exists. They're not the same thing. Moral injury can cause burnout, but so can other things. I mean, you know, I, I think of the the primary care doctor who can't get their patient a medicine they need because the insurance company, you know, requires 19 pre-authorizations and they turn them all down. And there's yeah. and the, and that causes moral injury to that provider. That provider might get burned out from experiencing that moral injury. Those are two, that, that moral injury is the, is one of the causes of the burnout. But like you said, you could also have providers who haven't experienced moral injury, but are just burned out and, and both are real. And there's not, uh, I also agree with you. I, I don't understand why it has to be one or the other, or, you know, right. I mean, they're, the term burnout does not in and of itself imply any any fault of the provider, right? It's just right. a, a it's a diagnosis. And then the um, similarly, the idea of, uh, you know, yes, of course, I think we all agree that the system needs changing. But like you said, it's a huge system of which we're all a part and it's not changing yeah. overnight. And so in the meantime, we can either let people like you described really well, we can let people drown or we can say, look, we're going to try to do everything we can to help you while also advocating for systematic change. And that's that, right. that seems so clearly to be the right answer. Yeah. You know, you know, to build on that just real quick, uh, uh, there are so many parallels between the well-being movement in healthcare right now and the patient safety movement, which is how I kind of started my career. And and uh, uh, I'll tell you, uh, one of the parallels is that uh, when we've when somebody was struggling, uh, having um, uh, been a, like a, a you go to work on a Wednesday morning intending to help your patients, you go to you go home on a Wednesday night knowing that you harm somebody. Uh, now you take that person. And you help them to become part of the thing that fixes the system that set them up for a fall. And they become a proponent of patient safety and patient advocacy, and they get to tell their story and they can grow from it. And it becomes a badge of honor and not a, and not this kind of 
is Scarlet Letter. Uh, that that you know, using it as a as a way of as as a leverage to help them heal was so powerful and so it's such a big deal. There similar things happen with well being uh, that where you can take people and and they can use their turnaround story to motivate others and to help their colleagues and it makes them more co- uh, uh, compassionate and, be- and better leaders and better mentors. So that's a big parallel. But the other big parallel that I see is um, man, I remember in, in like two thousand. Well, in 1997, I did grand rounds for um, uh, a hospital that shall not be named, um, and uh, I was really new uh, to um, medicine research, and I was talking about human error. Uh, like human error, this is what human error looks like in aviation. This is what it looks like in our in our uh, uh, in NASA and in Antarctic winter, winter overstations, and and uh, and here's what human error looks like in the ICU and in the ED and in the in the in the, in the um, operating room. And these physicians said to me, "Well, I get what you mean by human error, but but you know that's just we don't we don't have human error in medicine. Uh, that and and that is not the mentality anymore. But that was." Then in the 90s, getting people to talk about patient safety and human error, right? That was just not part of the vernacular. Uh, and we adjusted and we grew and we 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 got to, into these arguments about what is patient safety and what is quality. And there were these throw down, drag out fights about what is an error and what is not an error. And and um, uh, and we, we we got over that. We grew. And now most hospitals have a patient safety officer and they have a chief quality officer. And we have like we we, we we've come to address it and we have infrastructure and resources to, to tackle it. That's growing. That's starting to happen now, but we're still in these fist, fisticuffs about um, like, what is it burnout or is it resilience? Is it moral injury? Is it moral distress? Is it, you know, is it well-being? Like, what is this? And so we're going to, we're going to argue about the words for a little bit longer, but uh, uh, you know, we're already seeing that similar trajectory, right? That was it the Gandhi said first they, uh, uh, ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Uh, we're at the then they fight you stage, so we're about to win on well-being. So hang in there. Science is catching up. We're gonna we're gonna get this right, but it, but we're going through this the standard you know phases. Yeah, I love that, and you know I hadn't thought about this before, but you know the trajectory you laid out for the kind of patient safety movement and how universities our health health system started having chief patient safety officers, and now you know more and more places are having chief wellness officers. So you know it yeah. is that that yeah. same trajectory. Yeah. So is it possible to prevent burnout? I mean, can you inoculate somebody in, a, in any way that would help prevent them or make them less um, susceptible to burnout? Not with the science as it stands right now. Uh, not really. Um, um, uh, if, if, if what you're doing is your, um, uh, your first kind of shot at helping healthcare workers with their well-being is in medical school and nursing school, you're like already over a decade too late. Right. This stuff should have happened way before bad habits have formed and, and gotten and gotten worse. Um, so uh, we, you know, uh, their, their exposures to kind of like well-being toxins, if you will, um, has, has already been in, in brain. You can minimize you can minimize, you know, burnout and you can normalize burnout, but I don't think you can eliminate it. It's going to it's going to come up and down and, and people are going to different people are going to have to deal with it in different ways. And that's why having kind of a choose your own adventure of well-being strategies is so critical uh, that we don't just say, here's the thing that you do. Here's the pill that you take. It's it, it's going to be different for different healthcare workers. OK, so then let's talk about that. How do we treat burnout? Uh, you know, what do we know that can make a difference? Yeah. So, um, uh, well, there's what we know, uh, and 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 you know that uh, you need to have a certain amount of physical activity, right, for your 
well-being and for your immune system function. You have to have a certain amount of sleep, you know, and, and you should have some time, uh, so social activity with, with friends and colleagues. Um, and all of that is useless to tell anybody who's in healthcare because they're not going to do it. Uh, nobody has time to go and work on their diet or work on their physical activity or work on their social network or, or go learn a new life skill like yoga or meditation. So we have really doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on, on bite-sized well-being strategies. And it turns out doing simple things can make a uh, lasting impact uh, on your well-being. Uh, it's not going to take you from miserable to flourishing, but it can it can take you from miserable to a heck of a lot less miserable and more willing to do something else for your well-being. To if if we can, for example, we have about twenty different interventions on our website, uh, uh, in our and and you can choose uh, from different kind of topics and 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 well-being strategies. Uh, one of them is a, a gratitude exercise that we do. Uh, so it's a 10 minute activity. You can do it once, you can do it twice. But with this 10 minute activity using randomized controlled trials, we can measure a difference in your well-being a month, six weeks, eight weeks later. So does it last forever? No, but 10 minutes now, we can still measure a difference in you two months later. Hey, I'll take it. What else you got? Give me some more of that. And uh, you can fold in an activity like that as part of a, a, of a grand rounds or as part of a, a staff meeting or as part of a retreat or an in-service. And, um, or you can part, we, we do it now uh, in orientation. So you can show people that there are these bite sized strategies that can make a real difference. I'll give you another example um, that a lot of people don't know about. It's one of my favorites. It was one of my favorites to put together and absolutely my favorite to deliver. I just love uh, uh, sharing it with people, but it's called um, our awe, it's called our awe tool, A W E, for cultivating awe and wonder. So it turns out if I can get you to go, oh, Holy crap, what is that? That's amazing. If I can get you to do that by like looking at a scene from nature or an optical illusion or a magic trick uh, or, or, or just like reflecting on uh, some, some, some beautiful like, you know, uh, the Grand Canyon or and, and you, you name it. Um, uh, if I can get you to kind of have that feeling, even if just for a moment and then to write about it for just a few minutes, uh, just like with the gratitude intervention, we can get we can actually help you uh, not just with your ability uh, to feel uh, meaning and purpose in your life, but we help you with what's called your emotional recovery, your ability to bounce back after an upheaval. And uh, that is a favorite activity for physicians because one of the first things physicians let go is like this is the ability to be amazed like by the world around them. They, they kind of become desensitized. And by reintroducing them to that, it's uh, that's been a really fun one to, to watch and to track because they don't expect that. They, they expect you to talk about mindfulness or self-compassion or yoga or something, but they don't expect you to talk to show them a bunch of um, scenes from nature uh, and optical illusions uh, and, and then, then to feel better afterward. And those are the kinds of hooks that we get into people that they say, well, what else do you have in your little list there? I want to see what, what else do you have? Um, and then we have one for humor. We have one for, uh, curiosity. We have one for, we have one for self-compassion. We have one for sleep. We have one for work-life balance. Uh, so there's a lot of different things that you can kind of, uh, choose from, uh, but those bite-sized strategies, you're like, uh, two minutes a week for eight days or, or uh, three to four minutes for four days. Like those bite-sized strategies, when you measure them uh, using RCTs and pre-post and, uh, and good metrics, good valid metrics, you can show that um, we can start really refilling our tank with these uh, simple interventions and they're enjoyable. They feel good. And none of them involve a therapist helping you to slay the demons of your past. Like 
you should absolutely be in therapy. Uh, but th- but you can, without being in therapy, do a ton of things that help with your well-being. And that's what's kind of cool about these bite size strategies. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of those. And you know, I remember I had the the pleasure and and really um, uh, incredible experience of going to a workshop you put on a few years ago. And I remember this very distinctly that you had us write a, a letter of gratitude to someone in our lives. And then you suggested, of course, you couldn't make us do it, but you suggested when you leave here, call yep. and read them. And I can I can picture it right now. I got in my car and before I left yep. the park, I called the person who I'd written the letter to and I said, can I read you something that I just wrote in this workshop I was in? And I read it to them. And the, the you know, I will say beforehand, if you had said to me, okay, we're, you're going to do this today and it's going to make a difference, I would have totally poo-pooed it. I would have said, right. I'll me do too. it. Me too. Yep, absolutely. And yet I can still, that must have been four years ago. I can still remember today how incredible that felt to do and, and how it, it lifted me for, for uh, you know, quite some time, maybe still. Um, and, and, and this other person and this yeah. other person, right? Yeah, I'm I sure. Mean, um, so I've repeated it myself many times since then, and I've had my trainees do it and I've had others do it. And oh, it's, it's great. Such a powerful, such a powerful tool, as I'm sure these others are, some of which I've done and some I haven't. But we will definitely put a link in the show notes to your website and all those will be there for people to check out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this we've covered this a little bit, but just let's get back to the kind of systematic thing for now. If, you know, let's just play a little fantasy here. We, we know we can't change things overnight, but let's just say that you were designing a health system from the ground up. You had an unlimited budget, total control. How yeah. would you design it to minimize burnout and maximize wellness? You know, if you if there really were no no constraints of what we currently have, just what would be the ideal system? That I I, I love that question um, because you know, would that it were right. Uh, but if if it was, if I had my Harry Potter wand, I could tell you what I would uh, do is um, I'd start with twenty percent protected time uh, for anybody in any role to make sure that they get to spend a day a week doing something they they feel really passionate about. For some people, it's it's their role in administration. So for some people, it's it's being it's being up to their elbows and in, in human entrails. Uh, for for other people, it's research. For other people, it's mentoring. Like like whatever it is for you that really lights your passion. If if you can spend twenty percent of your time doing stuff that really fills your bucket, um, you can tolerate a lot of hard stuff the other four days a week. Um, uh, on average, uh, so uh, really making sure that we that we kind of structure that in and 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 build that in uh, and 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 protect that uh, would be it would be one thing. Another is uh, uh, having buffers uh, between the activities that you're doing, especially those emotionally draining encounters that you have, like to go from uh, someone who just lost a child in the emergency room to turn around someone who has kind of like a, a um, you know, an abrasion on their knee uh, and being, you know, having to be fully present in both of those encounters, being able to have a, a, um, a, a buffer if you need it, uh, where, where you can actually take it and you're incentivized to take it uh, is uh, man, especially when it comes around death and dying and 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 grief and bereavement, um, what, what we're seeing so frequent, frequently now are these grief attacks, like panic attacks. But just you cry uncontrollably at a Marvel movie, or you know, you 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 just you're 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 shopping and you get a box of cereal off the shelf and and you you can't stop shaking. You're 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 weeping so hard, um, and and giving people a space to kind of. Uh, um, process their grief in real time, I think is important. And then lastly, um, uh, the other of these three things that that come to mind when you say that is um, we have to incentivize self-care very differently. Uh, This idea of, oh, look at this 
look at this physician who's been awake for 77 hours straight and and what a champion and what a what a you know a role model for us all and it's like no if if that person's been awake for 77 hours they were fundamentally let down by their leadership and their system and uh, that should never happen that people have to do that and and we certainly shouldn't pretend like that's something to aspire toward um uh and so that's part of it's a culture change but this idea of how do you incentivize self-care um i tell you my boss uh who's the chief medical officer at uh, at duke he starts his weekly um check-ins with me he says so brian the world is still on fire man it's still on fire uh here's what i'm doing for my well-being uh, so what, what are you doing for your well-being and that's how we start our weekly check-ins and that normalizes it. So we need to normalize it and incentivize it so that um, this idea of real leaders, right, are the ones that kind of wear their well-being on their shirt sleeves uh, in ways that role model it for everybody else. Uh, I think that's, those are three kind of simple things. That's pie in the sky stuff. Yep. Yep. But so important to have at least this idea. Now, let me ask you, what about, you know, and it would fit in that third bucket, if you were, again, waving your wand and designing, would you give, in addition to the 20% kind of dedicated to passionate work, would you would you give people a day a week? Would you go to like a, a four-day-a-week work model where people had a day every week that was only allowed to be spent on, you know, wellness, like being with their family, you know, going on a hike, whatever? Yeah, I, I would do that. Uh, very carefully, uh, because if 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 you don't change the culture and you just put in a system like that, what what what, what happens right now when you put like a, a massage table uh, in a in a work setting? Like it sits there, like the Maytag repairman, right? Nobody uses it. Um, and then the nurse manager says, "Oh, I put the table there and hired a masseuse for for four days, and not a single person lay down on that table." Well, who wants to get a massage while you're while you're colleagues are busting their butts, right? Doing the impossible. Um, so we have to change the culture and the context so that like something like that would be kind of uh, uh, desirable uh, for, for, for people in the unit. And similarly, if you were to kind of grab that 20% time and, and, and really, really protect it so that whatever that means for that person, or, or, or yeah, if you do work to go to like a four day a week model, for example, you'd have to do it in a way that you're addressing people's budgets and their plans and their savings. Because when we first introduced the 12 hour shift to nurses in like the late 80s and the 90s. Um, it was a work-life balance, like saving grace. The first several years when people only went to work three days a week and, and then they had four days where they didn't have to work, that was amazing. But who works three 12-hour shifts now? Ain't nobody do that no more. Uh, that's the problem. So you've got like these 60-year-old nurses working three hours here or three days a week here, 12 hours a shift, and three days a week across the street, uh, 12 hours a shift, and sometimes even more. Uh, and that's just not what 60-year-olds are supposed to do. Uh, and so uh, all the benefits of the 12-hour shift have since completely been erased. So you can't see any recent um, studies that show that 12 hours are good for your work-life balance. It's only those initial ones when it really was a departure. So now people have, you know, they've got their car payments and they've got their kids in college. And so they can't cut back their hours. And, and it's, it's, it's complicated for a variety of reasons. For that reason, when you make that change, it has to be embedded in a, a, a system where people can actually um, use that well-being resource and not have it just be like, um, I'm taking the a, a PTO today so I can go spend uh, 14 hours in the EMR. Right, right. No, I couldn't agree more. 
All right. So let's ask a related question. If you were guiding, rather than designing a healthcare system, if you were guiding an individual healthcare worker in their own well-being journey, what are the important elements to maximize the effectiveness of that effort? So, yeah, this is this is a, a question we get a lot. Like, um, like I'm busy. I'm tired. I'm scared. I'm confused. Like, where do I start? Like this well-being stuff. Like it's a lot. Yeah. You know, so what, what what am I supposed to do? Um, uh, if, if I were to give you a simple answer, I would say um, uh, go to uh, evidence-based strategies, right? First and foremost, stay, stay with evidence-based. Don't just because somebody told you they did it doesn't mean that, you know, there's good science behind it. Um, so there's a lot of snake oil out there in the well-being world right now. So, so stick with evidence. Um, first thing that you do is you look at your numbers. Before you do anything, you get your own assessment and you get you, you write them down. You take a screenshot or you write them down. We have tools like our gratitude tool, for example. The first thing that we do before we give you the activity is we measure your burnout, your emotional exhaustion, and then we share your numbers. We say, do you want a copy of your score emailed to you so that you got a record of it? And then when we follow up with you a week later, we send it to you again so you can see whether or not it changed. If you're doing interventions where you get to follow your numbers, that's huge. Because if you want to lose weight, you got to step on the scale. And if you want to work on your well-being, you have to know your numbers. Um, and that's the, that. Most interventions don't do that. Most interventions are like, oh, go go for a walk, a brisk walk, and 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 look, physical activity is awesome. In fact, 15 minutes a day, five times a week, is a therapeutic effect for brisk walking. That's amazing. That's for under pressure when you're looking at at the effects of it under pressure. So you don't even need to get the recommended 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Half of that, you already get a therapeutic effect for depression. Um, and similarly, um, you can get bite sized. Um, activities to make a, a significant dent in your well-being deficit if you if you if you do them, but stick with the evidence-based stuff and stick with good metrics so that you can follow you can chart your progress. Um, then, if I were to give it one more nuanced bit of information around that, um, I start with something simple like three good things or a gratitude exercise. Start with something simple, um, but if you're struggling with your sleep, it's going to make it take longer. And uh, to, to find an effect, and it's gonna it's gonna make it much more difficult for you to engage in these activities reliably. Uh, so I know it's kind of against what I've been saying earlier about like um, don't tell people to you know, train for a marathon or or lose twenty pounds or thirty or forty pounds. But um, uh, if if what you're doing is getting two or three or four hours of sleep regularly, and you can't you're not going to bed at the, at a consistent time. You're not getting a consistently good amount of sleep, like seven or eight hours on average a night, or you know, or more. Uh, and if your quality of sleep isn't good, if it's not consistent, if it's not long enough, and if the quality isn't good enough, if you can spend a little time on your sleep first, everything else you do for well-being is going to have bigger effects. And so we have a work-life balance tool that we like to get people to start with if they know that their sleep is in trouble. We have a sleep tool and a work-life balance tool, uh, and, and those are two that can get you jump-started before you go into some more kind of complicated well-being activities. So that's a mouthful, uh, but stay with metrics, look at your numbers. Uh, if your sleep is getting in the way, it's going to make it take longer to see an effect. So you might want to start with that first. Yeah. Awesome. Those are such great words of wisdom. And yeah, the more I learn about sleep, uh, you know, I read uh, Matt Walker's Why We Sleep and heard a great talk he gave. Oh, yeah. and it's just so important. He's, and so he's easy amazing. To look. He's awesome. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and wow. Peter Kia does has some great podcasts with uh, Matt Walker as the guest, and and he and, like his episode forty seven on 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 the drive is a spectacular review of sleep. Spectacular review. I recommend I it to physicians all the time. 
I, I do the same. I recommend that that interview all the time. That's what made me read the book. I heard Peter's interview yeah. with that. And I, yeah. And then I went and read the book. Um, awesome. Uh, anything, Brian, that you think we didn't cover that, that is important to get out there? Um, well, this idea of of your well-being really is your ability to do stuff uh, has some strings attached to it. I, I would just say um, you don't have to have a full tank of gas to start to work on your well-being. And if you uh, try one of these simple bite-sized strategies, and you you may find that when it's dinner time that night, you don't grab the the the, the fatty, sugary, you know, um, you know, high carb, whatever, you know, or, or you're, that you're eating at two in the morning, uh, you're you're going to be more likely to have a, a slightly more pleasant conversation with your loved ones. You're going to get a slightly better night's sleep, and all of these things, these bite-sized like shifts, can make real. Uh, inroads into other things that are going to affect your well-being. Uh, and that's um, that's where I think people, well, if I just spent two minutes a day for a week, is that really going to make a dent in how miserable I am? The short answer is yes, it can. Awesome. I mean, that's such great words of hope. And as I said, I, I think if anyone out there is listening, thinking, eh, I don't buy it, I think you're in good company because most people think <laughs> they try it because this stuff makes a difference. And, and not only can I attest to that, but I mean, Brian and his group have have done these studies and found these results. So it's not just, you know, feel good stuff. It's actually uh, real science. Um, Brian, thank you so much. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Uh, anything you'd like to share with the audience, something they should check out? Uh, uh, what to check out? Um, well, if it was me, I'm I'm a woodworker and I love to go just I get just get covered in sawdust on doing something. But uh, what do I recommend to others? Uh, look, it the 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 world is a very complicated place right now, uh, and so my 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 one bit of advice for anybody listening right now would be um, call somebody who you like to spend time with. Uh, and schedule something very deliberately to do with them. If you can spend time with people you love and you can eat with them and laugh at the calamities of the world, this can all be something that we can uh, look back on uh, as just remember those those days that was a challenging time, but we got through it. Uh, we need uh, we need our we need our friends right now. We need to spend time with people that care about us. Uh, and uh, uh, that's one of the first things that we let slip through our fingers when we're stressed. So schedule some time to share a meal with somebody you love. I love that advice. And, you know, I, I think I always tell people, you know, my wife and I figured out a long time ago that if we don't schedule, right, it's easy not to you think, oh, we live together. We don't have to schedule it. But if we don't schedule time for ourselves to spend with each other, it mm -hmm. doesn't happen. Right. So yep. as, as, as kind of weird as that seems, even if you live with, the, you know, somebody, whether that's your kids, I do the same with my kids. I schedule one on one time with my children because otherwise it's not going to happen. So, you right. know, I love you said that schedule it, get, get it on the books um, and give it the do it. If you're putting your meetings at work on the books, you should certainly be putting time with your family uh, and friends on the books. Heck yeah. Um, awesome. Well, I'm going to make a totally frivolous, uh, fun recommendation, a TV show called Bridgerton that um, actually season two is the most recent one. And, you know, I think a lot, I, I don't know, I could be wrong about this, but I think a lot of people watched season one because it had this very, very attractive male actor in it. And there was pictures of him shirtless on the, you know, in the magazines and, and online. And everybody thought, you know, that, that was a reason to watch it. And it, but it was actually quite good, but season two, he's not even in it, but I will tell you season two was incredibly well done. It was really interesting. And, and uh, the, the action and the kind of love story between the two main characters. I mean, it's very, very 
you know, frivolous and light, but it was really well done and fun to watch. So if you're looking for just a way to unplug and just watch something fun with a friend or, or, or family member, check out the se- the second season of Bridgerton. Um, it was a lot of fun. And honestly, I think you could watch it without having watched the first season and still enjoy it a lot. So something worth checking out. You Brian, can even schedule it and then it'd be a twofer. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Jed. Thank you for having me. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.